All right. Well, today is、um, the first Sunday of December, and、uh, <clears throat> not only is it a new day and a new month, but because it's, we're entering Christmas very soon, we're actually、um, going to be taking a break from the Gospel of Mark sermon series that we've been in. We're going to pick it up back in March of next year. And、uh, this month in December, we're going to actually、uh, go back to our Advent series. And it's not to、uh, just repeat the same ser-、uh, sermons that we've shared last year, but to have a time set around、uh, a few weeks for us so that we can actually gather around and to remember the arrival of Christ and, and what that means and what that means for us as we also anticipate the coming of Christ again. And so we're going to take a few weeks、uh, around Advent. And today we're going to be、um, talking about God's generous. Gift and every week it's going to be about God's generous gift, but today specifically, what we want to do is we want to call your attention to God's generous gift in that God came to us. And I, I, know, I know right now, and at, at you know, kind of first glance, that might not seem like it's a generous gift. Why is that generous? Why is that a gift that God came to us?、Uh, and, and my prayer, my hope is that through this series today, at the sermon today, you would see that God coming down to us is actually God's generous gift because. There was nothing in our own strength. There's no amount of works. There's no amount of effort that,、uh, that can get、uh, humanity、uh, to God. That it's like a mountain that we can never climb. And so, God coming down to us in person, not with an email or RSVP, but God coming down in person, in the flesh, is His generous gift to us. I was thinking about, man, how do I. Uh, uh, how do I kind of、um, uh, illustrate this? How do I get people to see、uh, what this is like? That something that was、uh, out of our reach came near to us, and we get to experience the benefits of that. I, I just, for me, automatically, I think about food. I, I think about、uh, food that was once far away that has been brought near. Amen by myself, right? Some of us, we, all we eat is like ethnic foods, right? Food that, that at some point in history was only in a certain part of the world, but,、um, but because of people that have come and, and opened shops or even you know, in your own house, we've brought some amazing food around the world and it's now here in Chicago and even in our own homes, right? I don't know if you guys know.、Um, Uh, in, in this crowd, if you guys know what boba is, do you guys know what boba or, or bubble tea?、Uh, and if you guys don't know what bubble tea is, I actually don't know what it is either, but it's like this tea drink and they put some kind of gummy circles, gummy balls,、uh, and they call it tapioca, or in California, we call it boba. In Chicago, you know, we call it bubble tea, I guess. And,、um, but it's an amazing drink, and my wife and I, we love it. We try to get it like once every few weeks. And,、um, And we love bubble tea. And the thing about it is, is that it's right in Chinatown, about two, three minutes from where we live. And so we have easy access to bubble tea. We have easy, I mean, it's just walking distance from where we are. It's not cheap, but we have access to it. Does that make sense? And the thing about it is, I'm pretty sure boba, bubble tea was not, like, I'm pretty sure it didn't originate in Chicago. I'm pretty sure, like, it, it wasn't from the Midwest. I'm pretty sure that it was some. From some other part of the world, and what, what, what was at some point far away has been brought near, right? It's the benefits of、uh, one of the benefits of just having immigrants as well. We get to enjoy other parts of the world and cultures and food because what was far has been brought near. Are you with me? All right. I mean, what would life be like without boba, right? And what would I mean, what would life be like if we never had the incredible blessing of having things that are far? Been brought near to us. I don't know if you guys are coffee drinkers.、Um, any coffee drinkers? Anybody that lo- loves Starbucks, regular Starbucks drinkers? Like for you, it's a pretty historic month, right? This, this past month, right? Friday, November the 15th. And I know this because it's, I saw it on the news. I, I think I got even email updates about it. But the,、uh, the Starbucks had just opened the largest. Uh, roastery in the whole world, okay, not just in the state of Illinois or the US, but in the whole world, the largest Starbucks roastery in the world has, is now in Chicago on Michigan Ave. It's five floors. There's an open、uh, rooftop, I guess. I don't know why a coffee shop needs that, but it's 35,000 square feet. Pretty, pretty intense. And、uh, I've been to the one in Seattle, and when I got there, because I'm just thinking, 
like a regular Starbucks, you know, with, with just some extra stuff. When I got there, I was pretty amazed. I was pretty blown away. And, um, and this is when I was living in California. We, uh, we, we took a trip up, you know, to the Northwest, and we got to see it in person. But now this thing that was in Seattle or just different parts of the world has been brought near to Chicago. And now, like, people, uh, I don't know if you guys have been there or drove by kind of at least for opening week. If you have, you'll notice that there were lines out the door. I'm thinking 35,000 square feet. How do you get lines out the door? Like, isn't that, like, do you not have enough space to host the, the amount of people? It's just that there, people are so excited that Starbucks roastery has come and landed in Chicago. People will wait in line in the cold in 40-degree weather. All right, that's extreme winter storm for Californians, right? Like we don't go outside for 40 degrees or for anything. And, and people are waiting outside just, just to experience this. Some of you guys may, may not like Starbucks, but you might like uh, a coffee shop called Phil's Coffee. And uh, maybe some, some of you guys that are from the, you know, North, Northern California. And uh, Phil's Coffee was actually from Northern California that now has opened shop in, in different places of Chicago, right? And one of them here is in Wicker Park, right? And I, uh, um, you guys are looking at me like you don't know what I'm talking about, but, you know, I know what you're talking about. I know, I know you know what I'm talking about, right? And, 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 uh, and, and I remember, you know, getting the emails and, you know, soft opening, grand opening, please come join us, Wicker Park, Hyde Park, Lincoln Park, and, and they're just opening up everywhere. And I, I remember going to the one in Wicker Park that opening week. I drove close to it and just drove back home because the line was so long. I was like, I ain't going to wait. You know, I'm not waiting two hours for a cup of coffee. I have Keurig. Keurig will, will satisfy that, that for me. And, um, but I remember just amazed that for Phil's coffee, right, that you would have lines out the door. People would wait two hours, lines out the door because something far, something that used to be out of our reach, you, you would have to go extreme distances, pay uh, a lot of money to get there and then pay another $9 for the coffee. But you, you would have to go far away because th- that, that was something that was uh, at a distance but has been brought near, and so now you've got these lines. I think about Advent. I think about 2,000 years ago when Jesus came. I wonder, were there lines out the door? Because the prophets have prophesied. I wonder, man, what was that like? Jesus, I, and I think, man, if I've never read the Bible, I would have thought, man, people were probably waiting out of the, uh, the, the, the manger, you know, the, um, and just, just out the door. I mean, I'm sure there were lines. I'm sure people were waiting in the cold for hours. But you know what? Scriptures actually tell us that there were no lines. In fact, there were, there were, it wasn't just that there were no lines. Mary and Joseph, when they were trying to find a room to a stay, they said to them, there is no room. There's no room for Jesus. And I thought, this is why we need Advent. At least this is why we need to continue to come back to what it meant for Christ to come into the world. This is why we need to talk about God's generous gift. What does it mean that God came to us? Sometimes we've been in church so long that good news has become old news. And we want to present the good news again. And that it would be sweet again. That you would savor it again. And, and, and just almost mind-blown and in awe and in wonder that in disbelief almost that God, you would come. When we were the ones that were far from you, you decided to come. When we could not in our own strength climb that mountain, you came from heaven to earth. That God came to us. That's the hope of our series, is that, that you and I, that we don't miss the glory of God's generous gift to us, that while we were far away, the Bible says that while we were sinners, not, you know, not when we started to make some improvements in life, God came, not when we were starting to uh, uh, turn our life around, not when we were trying to, you know, getting more mature, and, and not when we were, uh, you know, putting more effort into our righteousness, God came, the Bible says, that while we were far away, while we were at an incredible distance, while we were still sinners, God came. And so Advent is remembering that. It's remembering who, who came. And then we've got to talk about that. Who, who actually came? 
We know the name Jesus, but who is Jesus? Who is it that actually came? Why did he come? And how did he come? And so today, my, my, my hope is that uh, as we look into the Gospel of John here in chapter 1, I think it, it points out, highlights all three things of who it is that came, why he came, and how he came. The Gospel of John is a bit unique compared to the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, because John, what he does in his Gospel is that he doesn't just tell us stories about Jesus. What John does is he actually uh, tells us the nature of who Jesus is. I mean, he goes to an extreme length and, and he goes the distance to describe to us the nature of who Jesus is. That we don't just, we don't just you know, um, take it for what it's worth that, that, that Jesus, that somehow God just came. But we, we have to know who is this Jesus. What does that mean for us? What kind of weight does that bear? That God actually came to us. If you guys didn't notice, John, in his um, opening words in, in his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1, the first three words is this. In the beginning. In the beginning. And he, John uses those words on purpose because if you were reading John's letter in this gospel during the time that John wrote it, you would automatically know that John is trying to get our attention back to another part of the scriptures that actually says those exact same words in the beginning, right? And it's not rocket science, but we all know that that comes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The very first words of God's inspired word is in the beginning. And John, as he's writing, as he's thinking about how do I tell the people the gravity and the weight of who actually came, and he says, I'm going to just take it all the way back to Genesis 1, and I'm going to say, in the beginning. And this is what he says, in the beginning was the word. This Greek word is logos. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. But not only was he with God, the word was God. He uses this word logos. In the beginning was the logos. The logos was with God, and the logos was God. The question is, why does he use that word in three times in the first sentence of his opening gospel? We have to know about John and his gospels that um, most scholars agree that John's gospel is written a few decades later compared to the other gospels, and it was written in a in a city called Ephesus. And Ephesus was heavily uh, influenced by Greek culture. In Greek philosophy, John's aim was to share the gospel of who it is that actually came from heaven to earth to both Jews and to the Greeks. How do you convey who Jesus is to both Jews and to the Greeks? So he uses this word logos. The logos was something that the Jews understood and the Greeks understood, but it meant different things. But the, what John does is he takes logos and he presents it to the Jews and the Greeks, and then he points, using Logos, points them back to Jesus, and he connects Jesus to the Logos. See, to the Jews, this is what Logos meant. It meant that Logos was that speaking voice of God. It, it was the creating, uh, the, the, the creating creator God. It was the Logos meant for the Jews, the one in Genesis in the beginning, the one who created all things. It was the very reason the heavens and the earth exist, the reason why stars and the moons exist and the way that they do. The Jews understood the Old Testament that there was a creator God and there was, there was that Logos before them. They didn't, they didn't believe, though, that Logos was actually Jesus and Jesus was there. But they understood what Logos was. But for the Greeks in Ephesus, Logos meant something different. They didn't believe in the Old Testament. They didn't believe in, their, in the Jewish faith. They believed that Logos was um, this term for the reason or the plan. They would even go as far as to say it's the force behind the, uh, that holds the center of the universe. It's the reason behind all human activity. And so they, they believe that there's got to be some kind of reason, some kind of force, plan out there that actually holds all things together. And the question that they wanted to ask is, what is the reason for its existence? Why does that exist? Why do the stars and moon hold the way they do? Why, are, why is humanity uh, the way we are? Why do we exist? What is its purpose? What is its function? Some Greeks even went as far as to say, there must not be a logos. There must not be a reason. We just exist. 
but they would, they would wrap their minds around trying to figure out who or what is this logos that holds all things together. John, in verse 1, says, in the beginning, take it back to Genesis, so the Jews would see that Jesus was there with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was there in the beginning. Jesus was not some created being sometime down the line of history. Jesus was there at the beginning. Jesus was pre-existent, preeminent. Jesus was there with the Father. There is this imagery of the Trinity at work, three in one. Jesus was not a sidekick waiting for his time. Father, when can I come to, to earth? And Jesus was there, and it says in verse 2 that all things were created through him. For the Greeks, what John is trying to point out is to say to the Greeks, you guys are trying to figure out this logos, this reason. What he's saying is simply this, that the reason for humanity, the reason for the heavens, the reason for the stars, the reason for life is Jesus. What he's saying is this, that apart from Jesus, you will never know why you exist. Apart from Jesus, you will never make sense of the heavens and the earth. You, apart from Jesus, you will never know why things hold the way they do. Well, apart from Jesus, you will never know your function. Apart from Jesus, you will never know your true identity. Apart from Jesus, you will never know your purpose. Apart from Jesus, you will never know what you were fully intended to become and to live out and to experience. John is saying, that's Jesus. Jesus came. The Logos came. So the question for us is, do we know that reason? Do we know our reason and existence for life? Do we know what our function is? Do we know why we exist? The question is, do we know Jesus? Right? Because all things were made through him. Why does John, in his opening chapter, opening verse of his gospel, say, in the beginning? What John is trying to say is that Christ is the starting point of life. See, it's, I, I thought it was kind of interesting that Christmas is at the end of the year. And we all, we all, sometimes we can kind of mix up the messages and think, oh, you know what, Christmas in December, <laughs> almost the last week of December, is just the way for us to remember to add Jesus in, into our life as if we just kind of live the way we want. And then December 25th, don't forget, Christ, add him Make sure he's at the end of your life. But John is not talking about the end. John's talking about the beginning. Do you guys see that? What John is saying is that Christmas is not for us to add Christ at the end of our life. What he's saying is Christ must be at the beginning of our life. In, in, in other words, what John is saying is without Christ, there was no beginning. Without Christ, there is no life that we're actually living. Christ is not something we or someone we add at the end of our lives, friends. Christ is one that gives us our starting points. Apart from him, we don't know why we, why we exist. Apart from him, we don't know what our function is. Apart from him, we don't know who we actually are. And so with Christ, in Christ, we have a starting point, which which tells us and, and helps us to understand why he actually came then. And John, so first what he wants us to do is wrap our minds around who it is that came. He's saying this Jesus that came, like he is God. He's God. God came. He, he's not like God created something that just kind of to resemble him. He's not just a reflection. He is the very exact imprint, radiance of God. He is, he is the one that shares intimate fellowship with the Holy Spirit and the Father. He is the perfect one. He is my begotten son. He, he is the one that has come. He is the one that was in Genesis creating all things through him. In him we know why we exist. And then John begins to unwrap and reveal to us why he came. And he says in verse 4, in Jesus, in him was life. Okay? There's two words that I want to point out to you. That's the word life and light. He says in verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life and the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So here's what John's saying. Jesus came. He came to give life, and he also came to give light. Why is that important to us? I would say this because I think far too often we miss out on the reality of why Jesus actually came. We, sometimes we think Jesus came just to 
maybe improve the condition of our lives. Jesus came so that we can agree with him. Jesus came so that we can like him. Jesus came because, uh, so that we could have some kind of anchor in times of suffering. And I'm not saying those are bad. But that's not why actually Jesus came. Jesus came to give life. What that means is that apart from Jesus, there was no life. Apart from Jesus coming down from heaven to earth, there was only death. So here's what I know about the Advent. Here's what I know about his arrival. All right, church, are you with me? The arrival of Jesus was a matter of life and death. It wasn't a matter of uh, 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 average life versus good life. It wasn't a matter of good life and a better life. Are you tracking? When Jesus came, if he says that he came to give life, it meant that it was a matter of life and death. And what I mean by that, what John means by that is, apart from Jesus, there is no, there is no life and we're actually dead. And apart from Jesus, there is no light. There's only darkness. So his arrival was a matter of life and death. And his arrival was a matter of light and darkness. And I know for some of us that that may not be fully received. And you might say, you know, hold on, hold on. I don't know if I fully agree because I feel like without God, like I feel pretty alive. And I know for me, like I, I thought I was pretty alive before I met Christ too. You see, you might think, well, you know, I feel pretty alive because like physically I'm in good shape. I'm active. I'm working out, I'm eating better, I'm not sick, and maybe you were before in a worse condition, but now you feel like, man, you know, physically, you know, with my health and everything, I'm, I'm doing really well, and you might feel physically alive, and that may be so. The question of life is not are you physically alive, the question is are you spiritually alive? Are you spiritually alive? You might say, well, James, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I don't, know about, I don't know about the whole physical thing, but, you know, I, with, with relationships with people, uh, man, it's just, it's just doing really well. Life is really good right now. Like, my, my, my uh, relationships at home with my mom and dad, my siblings, even people at work, people in my neighborhood, I mean, this is going really well. I used to be one that, you know, couldn't hold friendships or just people didn't like me or accept me, but now I feel like I've got people around me that love me, and just relationally, I think I'm doing well. I think I'm doing really well. I feel pretty alive. I don't know if I really need God, and the question is not are you relationally alive the question is are you spiritually alive you might say well you know you know james i I don't know about physically or like relational but you know in my workplace and my career i'm just you know i spent so many years of of of, you know studying this and getting this degree that degree and now i'm working and you know i'm just i feel like i'm thriving i think i'm i feel like i'm flourishing i'm doing well Uh, i feel like i'm on a good trajectory i think i'm you know i might i might even be at like you know pinnacle at the peak of my career just you know things are incredible with work life is good and i i don't i don't know i don't think that's really god i think it's just my work and my effort put into it and you might feel like man you know at work i feel alive you know that may be so but the question is are you spiritually alive you know the bible says it like this that what good is it to gain the whole world but to forfeit your own soul because you think about health we all know that health at some point will start to deteriorate that work at some point you, you, you know you put all of your eggs into just your career and work but at some point you retire and then what's next what good is it to gain the whole world in that area except and yet forfeit your own soul? What good is it to have all these incredible relationships with people and miss out on the one relationship that you're meant to have? The question is, do you have life with God? When it comes to you, your relationship with God, is there life there? Is there a flourishing there? Is there, is there a growth there in which you, you, you know you know God? It's like, it's, it's that sense of, you know, someone that's been bedridden because they're sick and for, you know, days or weeks, maybe even months. And, you know, that, that moment when your fever goes down, you're feeling better and you, you start to, you're starting to eat again and you're, you're now out of bed and you're just taking a nice warm shower and the first time in a long time you're eating your first good meal and, and, and you just have a nice cup of coffee or whatever it is and, you, and that feeling of like, I feel alive now. That's what it's like to be alive with God. You know that you were once there, but now you're here. See, the thing about it is that when you're spiritually dead, you don't know that you're dead and you're convinced that you're alive. But you don't know God. 
You're not experiencing his riches at his expense. And life is all about your own glory and not his. So the question for us is not are we alive in all these other areas that are just temporary, but are you alive with God that is actually eternal? Christ came to give life that is eternal, life that is abundant. Christ came so that we can be spiritually made alive with God. And, and it's not that we were just, you know, had an average life with God and that he just wants to improve that. No, no, we were actually dead in our sin. Like we had no concept of God. There was no way we can open our eyes and our heart and our ears to God. God had to do that. God had to come to us to bring life back into a dead soul. That's the gospel, that he doesn't just improve our lives. He takes us from death to life. And in that life, there is this incredible light. And life and light, they go together. They work together. And when you have light, you're able to now see where you're supposed to go. Because, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but people can actually get used to darkness. Did you know that? People can actually get used to dark. Like people can walk around in the dark because they're just used to it. And they don't know, they just kind of forgot. And then when the light goes on, it's like, oh, man, what is that? Why? Because they were in the dark for so long. They don't even, they, they can't even handle the light. And when Christ comes and he takes his place in our life, not only gives us eternal and an abundant life, but it gives us a light to see him, to behold him, to see our function, to see our identity, to see the good news, to see where we're, where we're meant to go. And how we're meant to live. And you know, the purpose of light is not to blend in. The purpose of light is always to break through. Light always breaks through darkness. And Christ comes to give us life and to give us light. And you know how I know someone has received Christ, someone that has this spiritual life and spiritual light? It's because the scripture says in John 1, 5 that the light shines in the darkness, okay? So the light is going to be there in the darkness. It's not going to be light upon light. It's going to be light in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome. Here's how I know that somebody's been brought from death to life. Someone that's been in darkness has received incredible light. And we're not just talking about some small light. We're talking about the radiance of Christ in us. You know how I know is this, that even when life feels incredibly dark, even when circumstances are incredibly dark and darkness hovers over us and circumstances and relationships, even work starts to crumble down and we, and we used to put all of our life and all of our eggs in those baskets. But even then when everything else seems to not go the way we thought it would go or hoped it would go and darkness seems to cover and hover over us, there, the Bible says that the, the light, the darkness does not overcome the light. Here's how I know you've received Jesus is that even in the midst of incredible darkness, it does not overcome the light. And I'm not just speaking from a biblical, scriptural standpoint, though it teaches that. I'm, I'm speaking this from a personal, experiential standpoint in which I've experienced darkness over my life, and yet the darkness has not overcome. See, many of you guys know my testimony. Some of you guys don't. And um, for the sake of those who might be here for the first time or hearing this for the first time, you know, I wasn't always a believer. Nobody just, nobody's born a believer. We're all born dead in our sin. And, and for the first 16 years of my life, um, I, I had worked my way up to, um, to be someone that's, you know, well-received and liked. And, and for a 16-year-old, life was as good as it possibly could. You guys remember 16 years old? That's when you're a junior in high school. You guys remember junior year of high school? A lot of stress with what? Your GPA, your SAT score, uh, college acceptance. For me, I had, you know, been playing a lot of golf, and uh, I had actually been ranked in the nation. And so at age 16, there was no pressure on me to study hard. I had to just get bare minimum. And I just, I played golf, which I loved anyway. And I had all these schools. Division I golf schools uh, uh, recruiting me to play golf for them, to, to, to want, wanting me to be at their school. Life was good for me. I was maybe not the most popular kid, but I had a lot of, I had a lot of friends. I was well-received. I had a good family. You know, I still do. For a 16-year-old kid, I, I, my testimony is not, you know, I was in the valley of life, and 
I just had nowhere to turn but God. And, and, you know, those are great testimonies as well. But mine was like, I was on the mountaintop. Life was really good for me, guys. Yet on this mountaintop, I had everything else, but I realized I was still spiritually dead. Because at the age of 16, um, through God shining his light through other people, invited me to church, invited me to a retreat. And, and at this retreat, um, God just really opened my eyes and opened my heart to know him and to receive him. And I became a believer. I became a born-again believer. And it, it was in that moment when I realized that I thought I was alive, but I realized I was actually dead. And in that moment, I realized I was dead, but now I am truly alive. The scripture calls that being born again. You have this new life. Does that make sense? And at the age of 16, um, I had this incredibly, incredible new life in me. And, and, and just it's almost as if my eyes open. And now I see things the way they should be seen. And I, I saw my family differently. I, saw, uh, I, I just saw everything in the world differently. But one month into becoming a Christian, I'm, I'm only 16 now. One month into becoming a Christian, uh, I was diagnosed with cancer. I had a malignant tumor in my leg which meant that I had to stop playing golf. I had a year and a half of chemotherapy treatment. Uh, and part of that was to, um, I became a below-the-knee amputee. And uh, it, it was a really dark, I want to say dark time in my life. And, and, and I want to say that darkness started to really hover and kind of hover over my life. And what could have actually brought me to darkness was that Christ in me, this life and this light in me, was so bright and so strong that the darkness, John 1, 5, the darkness could not overcome it. I still had this, I, I mean, sure, I, I had moments of like anger and disbelief, confusion, sadness. But you know what trumped it at the end of the day? Was I had this unexplainable hope and joy. That man, I used to be dead. But now I'm alive. And even if this body is wasting away, that there is a day when God will resurrect it again. I had this incredible light in me, and when the darkness was upon my life, it could not overcome. Jesus wants to give that to you. Jesus came to give that life and that light to you. That there is no darkness, no amount of darkness that comes that can overcome this light. In fact, light actually shines brighter in the darkness. Light shines brighter. It's more glorious in the dark. And, and after I had, um, by God's grace, I was, I'm a cancer survivor, and it's been years now, but uh, I remember just uh, about a year into uh, post-treatment, uh, you know, I was going back to school and my regular life, and I'm not a famous guy, right, but uh, I just knew the right people at the right time, and somehow someone knew uh, about me, that there was this kid from L.A. that uh, was ranked in the nation and being recruited to Division I golf schools and had, uh, was diagnosed with cancer, became an amputee, and now he's overcome cancer. And, and, and this guy, um, this journalist, wanted to know my story, he wanted to print an article about me in the L.A. Times newspaper. And so I agreed to do it. And uh, so I brought this with you guys. And so for those, for those millennials in the room, this is what we call a newspaper. And um, it's basically uh, paper, and uh, you actually... There was a time in our history when you actually print something on paper. And so this is a, this is a newspaper. And, and this article came out January 1st of the year 2000 uh, in, in L.A. On the front page of the sports, uh, L.A. sports is on the bottom, back in the swing. That's actually my story. Uh, that's actually my picture, all right? Don't try to look too close, all right? It's kind of embarrassing. But, uh, and the story continues. And on the backside, there's another picture of me swinging the golf club. And the article goes on even to the backside. I, I brought it because I, I uh, actually someone from our church had given this as a gift. I had lost the hard copy. And, and someone gave it to me as a gift last Christmas. And now I've kept it. And I want to make sure I don't lose it. But I was reading it again. And, and just um, and sometimes I do this not because like, I'm weird, you know. But I do because it's like my article, right. But I read it because it reminds me of God's grace in my life of where I used to be and how God has brought me here. And um, so when, when this guy was interviewing me, I, he wanted to know, like, how did you get through cancer? Like, you're 16 years old, you're being recruited, you're, you're, you're ranked in the nation, and you, you're hit with cancer. How do you get through it? 
what were your thoughts? And he, he was asking me these questions, and, I, and this, is what I, this is, I guess, what I said. Okay, it's kind of weird, right? I'm just reading my own words, but um, he writes, but Myung, that's my last name, who was once high on the recruiting list of uh, national golf um, powers, uh, realizes that there are more important things than scholarships. And he quotes me, when you're hit with something like cancer, the first thing you think of is life and death, he said. It makes you think, am I going to live or am I going to die? And it kind of makes you think about what your purpose is. If you're going to live, why do you want to live? And, I, and it takes me back because I remember when I first heard the news uh, that I was diagnosed with cancer. It came through a voicemail and um, on a phone. Back in the day, there used to be this big thing called a phone and a voicemail machine and a red button, and you'd press it, and, and it basically shared the news that, you're, you know, James has been diagnosed with cancer and needs to come for treatment right away. The first thought was, am I going to live or, or am I going to die? And if I'm going to live, what is it that I'm going to live for is what I told the, this journalist. And then I began to share about my faith, and I said, here's what I live for. Even in the midst of of possible, you know, just, you know, cancer taking over my life. And even in the midst of darkness, I began to share with him the light of Christ in me and how he was the one that carried me through, that the darkness could not overcome it. And I began to share this with him. And in the bottom of that story, the last uh, paragraph, I, I basically tell him, I just got to tell others is what I said. I just got to tell others that whatever they're going through, you know, there's some things that you can't go through all by yourself. Here's how you know you have life and, and, and here's how you know you have light. Is that you, when you have this incredible life and light in Christ, you actually want to share with others. Because, you know, light, light is not meant for you to uh, hold to yourself and, and, and just to shine it upon yourself. But light is meant not just for you, but for others. The light of Christ in you is for others and to shine uh, to those around us. In the Gospel of Matthew, it talks about how you and I, we are the light of the world. Where a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. It talks about how we ought to shine before others so that others may see our good works right? And, and they may give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Paul says in Philippians, to shine as lights in the world. And so for those that have this life and light, there is a response. There is a call. There is a natural response, I would say. And the natural response is that this light is not just for me or just in me, but it's for others to shine around me. And this Advent, one of our hopes is our pastor's as we got together to pray and to brainstorm this series, is that we hope that our church would behold the life and the light of Christ and, and who it is that came and why he came, and that we would be so compelled by his love that we would actually go and share that light with others in the world. You guys know why that uh, some of us have a hard time shining the light? That might come in the form of sharing the gospel and sharing literally about Jesus to others. It might come in the form of just telling someone that you're a believer, that you go to church, that you believe in the scriptures, that you believe in who Jesus is. It might be in the form of an invitation to church, which we hope that you will do throughout this Advent series, is to bring a neighbor, bring a friend, bring a family member to hear the good news of Christ and who it is that came and why he came and how he came. And you know why that's so daunting at times is that we think that we are the saving light. We have this burden to somehow, we, we think that we are the ones to bring someone all the way to the end zone. And I'm telling you, you and I, we are not the saving light, but we are the shining lights. And the shining light is this. A shining light is just the light around someone's life that points them to the saving light. There's a lot of shining lights in the world that God has placed all around the world, but there's only one saving light. And so many times when we think about evangelism, when we think about sharing Jesus, we, we feel like we have to be the one to save them, but we're not the Savior. Amen? I remember when I, I, I wanted to share the gospel with people that this pressure, like I have to be the one to lead them all the way to salvation. But I began to understand that I'm not the saving light, 
but I am the shining light. Christ, his light in me, shines around me so that they can see the true saving light. What that means is this, that if you take the image of a football field, your job is not just to, your, your, your job is not to take them to the end zone. God will do that. But he wants to do that through you to the end zone. And so your job might not be to take them to the end zone, which he might do. But what if your job was just to take that person and shine your light just 10 yards so that that person who is not spiritually alive, so that that person who is in darkness can see the life and see the light and go 10 more yards down the field. And then God would raise someone else up. God would send another person to shine that light and they would go 10 more yards. And then God would raise another person to go 10 more yards until they reached the saving light. What if that was your purpose? You know, even last night I was driving down a, a dark street, but it was lights everywhere. It wasn't just one big light shining the way. Every 10 yards, there's another light post. And you know what the church is? We're a shining light. You're, you're, you're not that big saving light, but we are the shining light. And it's just to shine around us. There's a reason why you are where you are in the world, where you are with the people, where you are. God wants you to shine around where you are. And that shining light, your shining light in Christ, points them to the saving light, which is Christ. I want you to think about that. What if God wants to just use you to bring someone just 10 more yards down the road and point them to the saving light? Light is not just meant for you. Amen? I learned this from my own son. My four-year-old son, Benjamin, I brought this little toy. I, I asked if I could borrow it from him for the purposes of the kingdom, and he said yes. So I'm um, thankful for my son because he's pretty, he's pretty uh, uh, what's the word, attached and, and uh, 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 selfish, right? <laughs> I said, Benjamin, can I borrow your, your toy that lights up? And he, 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 he knew which one I was talking about. He knows every single toy. It's crazy. He knows them by name, like God. You know, and, and, um, and, he, and, and this toy, I wanted to show you, he, he, uh, he plays with this, and, and this, this toy actually makes a, a loud engine noise. And, um, but this, this toy actually lights up. It's a Lightning McQueen, uh, kind of a keychain thing. But it, do you guys see that? Right? It lights up, right? And I know he's playing with it because I can hear it, right? He, he'll push push the spoiler and it would make a sound but it also also light up and I would watch him play with it and it's fascinating because you know where he takes this he doesn't take it to the brightest spot in our house he doesn't go right under the lamp or the right on the spot line go like this you know what he does with this and I didn't teach him okay he takes this and he literally goes into the closet closes the door it's kind of creepy right pray for him. Like he just literally goes into the closet. And I'm like, Benjamin, what are you doing in the closet by yourself? And why are you turning off the lights? And I just hear, arr, arr. he goes in the most darkest places. Why? Because even he knows that light is meant for the dark places. Light is meant to shine and break through darkness. And when John is saying, that Christ came to give light. It was a matter of life and death. It was a matter of light and darkness. He's saying that Jesus was that light shining through darkness. He's not trying to shine light upon light. He's trying to shine his light in the darkness. And that's the story of for those of us who have received his life and received his light. And this is, this is the reason why, folks, in Christmas, that's the reason why we sing songs like joy to the world. Not because we agree with Jesus. Not because we like Jesus. We sing joy to the world. Why? Because we were dead, but Christ brings life. Because I was in darkness, utter darkness, and Christ brought that light. You see, when we were far away, Christ came near. You see, we weren't always in the light. We were always in the dark, but God came to us. We were always in our sin and our slave to our sin, yet God came to us. We were not part of the solution. We were part of the problem, and yet God came to us. We, were, we, we did not know our very reason for existence. We would try to make up our own reason, and yet God came to us. We were busy running around chasing our own temporary glories, and yet God came to us. We were busy building our own empires and resumes, and yet God came to us. We were busy self-indulging, and yet God came to us. Church, 
Friends, his arrival changed my departure. His arrival changed my destination. That'll preach. Because for those of us in Christ, you and I, we know where we were headed without Christ. You know where we were departing to and where we were destined to. Yet because of his arrival, he gave us life and he gave us light. You know what John says in verse 9 and 10? It says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. But listen to this. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Friends, that, that may be you. The world was made through him and yet he came into the world and yet we did not know him. How is that possible? God, you created the world and you came into the world. How is it possible that they did not know you? How is it possible that they reject you? How is it possible that they're not waiting in line to be with you? How is that possible? It's because we're dead. It's because we're in darkness. It reminds me of um, when I was a sophomore in high school and, uh, you know, I was playing a lot of golf, as, as you guys know now, and I, I had missed a lot of school because of competitions, and I, I would miss a lot of exams. I would have to make it up afterwards. There was one week where I, I was out of town for a golf tournament, come back, and I, I missed a math exam. And so my teacher told me, hey, after school on this day, go to this classroom, and, and this teacher is going to uh, give you a makeup exam, and you would have to take that test. And so uh, this teacher, I knew who he was, and... Um, he didn't know me, but I knew who he was. He's kind of one of those popular teachers. We call him Mr. B for short. And everybody knew Mr. B. Everybody knew where his classroom was. And so I said, you know, no problem. On that day, at that time, I'll go to Mr. B and I'll take his exam. So I went to Mr. B and I said, hey, Mr. B, um, I'm, I'm, I'm in so-and-so's class. I missed school and I have to take up this exam, make, up, make it up. And so she told me to come to you that you would give me the test. He would give me the test. But when he was giving me the test, he asked me this question. And again, he doesn't know me. He asked me this question. He said, he said, why did you miss this test? Why did you miss the exam? I said, I was out of town because uh, I had a golf tournament. And he said, oh, you play golf? I said, yeah, I, I, I play a lot of golf, actually. And he goes, oh, oh, are you on the golf team? I was like, yeah, I'm actually in varsity, on the varsity golf team. And then this is what he says. He says, oh, if you're on the varsity golf team, you must know James Myung, is what he said. You must know James Myung. And that's such a weird question because if you guys don't know me, my name is James Myung. <laughs> and I'm like, I am that which you speak of. I am. <laughs> yeah, I, I am here and yet you do not know me. <laughs> trying to quote, quote scripture. You know. And I'm like, man, you, you're acting like as if you know me, asking me if I know James Myung. You don't even know James Myung. And I, I don't even know how I responded. I think I was just dumbfounded. You know, and I'm just like, how would, you, how would you respond if someone says, do you know so-and-so and they say your name? You'd be like, oh, I know that person very well. Very well. And I was just dumbfounded, like, as if you knew who James Myung was. Because if you knew who James Myung was, you would not ask that question. See, Mr. B knew about me. Because uh, I, I, had, I had worked my way in the Gulf, whatever, where... Do you guys remember Homeroom where they would, they would share the school news every morning? Uh, uh, yesterday, our varsity golf team from Cerritos High School defeated Sunny Hills, you know, and, and James Myung with the low score of 31. And, and so my name would come, and, and so people, teachers would recognize my name, and they knew me as the golfer. They didn't know who I was, though. So Mr. B was like, do you know James Myung? See, he knew about me, but he didn't know me. He knew about me, but he didn't know me. My hope Friends, my hope for you is that you would not just know about Christ, but that you would know Christ. That you would know Christ. That you would know that you have spiritual life with him and that you have the light of Christ with you. That the hope for Advent is not that you would just know about him and be informed, but that you would actually receive him as your life. Receive him as a light into the world. John chapter 1, verse 14, as I come to close, this is what he says, and the word became flesh. So we know who it is that came, that he was there in the beginning. Jesus was always there. And it begins with him. We know why he came, because it was a matter of life and death and light and darkness. 
And then John says, this is how he came. The word became flesh. This logos, this creator God, he took on flesh. He didn't cease to be God, but he came and he took on flesh. He came and he came as a baby. He came as an infant. He came as one of us. One pastor said it like this. It's like the the potter became mud on his own wheel. The creator God came into creation. Eugene Peterson in the Message Bible says, The word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. And he says, We saw the glory with our own eyes, with a one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. And this Christ came. The Logos became flesh, moved into our neighborhood, moved into our space in our world. And here's the gospel being presented to you. Here's the word being proclaimed to you. Why? So that you would believe in him. John says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You mean I don't have to work my way up a mountain? You don't mean I don't have to live this incredibly righteous life? You you mean I don't have to memorize scripture and have perfect church attendance? You mean I don't have to just uh, uh, work my, you know, earn this, earn my way up to God? You mean I just believe in gospel? John says yes. The good news is that Christ came to us. Christ did the work. And to those who believe, he will give the right to become children of God. By believing in him, Christ brings us from death to life, from darkness into the light. Not because we have worked our way to righteousness or we, it's a reward for how we live our lives. It's not because it's just for those that are moral, for those that are just good in the world's eyes. It's because we believe in him. We believe that Jesus came 2,000 years ago. We believe he came and he died for my sins. And we believe on the third day he rose again. And we believe that apart from him, there is nothing but death. But in him, there is eternal life. I believe that apart from him, there is only darkness. But in him, there is eternal light. And when we become children of God, now we have access to the Father. We have access to him as adopted children. We get the benefit of experiencing the riches of his goodness at his expense. So folks, for this Advent, my challenge for those that are in Christ is to again, to savor at who Jesus is, to behold why he came and how he came and, and who he was so that we w- it would compel us to not hold the light to ourselves but to shine the light around us. And for those that may be here and hearing the gospel for the first time, those that may consider themselves an outsider to Christ would come and become a child and and the children of God, that you would believe in him, that God would open your eyes to see who he is, God would open your heart to receive him so that he can give you life and he can give you light. Would you pray with me?